continuation of The Rise and Demise of Women's Liberation, a class analysis written by Marlene Dixon. The Rise of Class Conflict The early and primitive ideology of women's liberation stressed psychological oppression and social and occupational discrimination. The politics of psychological oppression swiftly transmuted into the bourgeois feminist ideology of men as the enemy, for psychological worldviews pit individual against individual and mystify the social basis of exploitation. Nevertheless, the politics of psychological oppression and of invoking the injustice of discrimination were aimed at altering the consciousness of women newly recruited to the movement in order to transform personal discontent into political militancy. Women, being in most cases without a political vocabulary, could most easily respond to the articulation of emotion. This, of course, explains the impassioned personal nature of the early polemical literature. It was indeed speaking bitterness. Furthermore, women of almost any political persuasion, or lack of one, can easily accept the straightforward demand for social equality, explaining the necessity for the abolition of social classes, the complexities of capitalism and its necessary evolution into imperialism, etc., a much more formidable task, often elicited more hostility than sympathy. On the other hand, the stress on discrimination and psychological theorizing aimed directly at the liberal core of North American politics. In turn, sex discrimination affects all women, irrespective of race, language, or class, but the fact that it does not affect all women in the same way or to the same degree was often absent from discussion. The primacy of ideologies of oppression and discrimination, in the absence of class analysis exposing exploitation, and the ethic of sisterhood, facilitated the recruitment of large numbers of women from certain strata of the middle class, especially students, professionals, upper-middle-class housewives, and women from all sections of the academic world. Given the predominantly apolitical disposition of women in general, coupled with their initial fearfulness and lack of political experience, the task of revolutionary political education was an uphill battle from the beginning. The articulation of a class analysis in both Canada and the U.S., too often in a style inherited from the competitive and intellectually arrogant student left, frightened women away or left them totally confused and unable to understand what the fuss was all about. In a purely agitational sense, the feminist anti-male line had the beauty of simplicity and matched the everyday experience of women. The left-wing radicals had the disadvantage of a complex argument that required hard work and study, an, quote, elitist sin. However, the anti-male line had its difficulties too, rooted in a fundamental contradiction which faces all women. It was impossible to tell women not to resent men when it was plain in everyday life that the agents of a woman's oppression at home and on the job were men. On the other hand, women were unwilling and unable to actualize anger against sexism into a hatred of men. Because of this contradiction, there existed a predisposition to take a rhetorical anti-male stand, throwing men out of meetings to keep them from being obstructionist, expressing anger and contempt towards men to display defiance, and thus give moral support and courage to new women, etc., overlaying a profound ambiguity regarding what was, or ought to be, the relationship between men and women. The result was a situation which might be termed dual leadership, made up of the early left activist organizers, the politicos, and the newer level of middle-class women, the feminists, the latter seeking, by virtue of their class position, wealth and education, to bring the goals, ideology, and style of the movement into line with their politics and class interests. 
the ethic of sisterhood publicly smoothed over these two opposing conceptions of the enemy, i.e. who and what is going to be abolished to accomplish the liberation of women. Thus, the public ideology of women's liberation built unity around certain basic feminist tenets acceptable to the mixed class composition of the mass movement. One, first priority must be placed on the organization and liberation of women, glossing over differing and contradictory positions on the definition and means to attain liberation. Two, action programs ought to put first priority upon woman-centered issues. And three, socialist revolution would not in itself guarantee the liberation of women. The class conflict seething under the nominal agreement on the basic tenets of feminism was ideologically expressed in two contradictory lines of analysis, corresponding to the dual leadership situation. The feminist line stemmed from the assertion that men are the principal enemy, and that the primary contradiction is between men and women. The politico line stemmed from the assertion that the male supremacist ruling class is the principal enemy, and that the primary contradiction exists between the exploited and exploiting classes, in which women bear the double burden of economic exploitation and social oppression. The leftist line stressed that the object of combat against male supremacist practices was the unification of the men and women of the exploited classes against a common class enemy in order to transcend the division and conflict sexism created between them. Women's liberation was called upon to combat sexism by combating the dependency and subjugation of women that created and perpetuated the exploitation and oppression of women. The position on men was explicit. Men in the exploited classes, bribed through their privileged position over women, acted so as to divide the class struggle. The source of divisiveness was not men per se, but the practice of male supremacy. One can immediately see that the leftist analysis, pointing to class and property relations as the source of the oppression of women, was much more difficult to propagandize than the feminist anti-male line. In everyday life, what all women confront is the bullying exploitation of men. From the job to the bedroom, men are the enemy, but men are not the same kind of enemy to all women. The Material Basis of Bourgeois Feminism For the middle-class woman, particularly if she has a career, or is planning to have a career, the primary problem is to get men out of the way, i.e. to free women from male dominance maintained by institutionalized discrimination, in order to enjoy, along with men, the full privileges of middle-class status. The system of sexual inequality and institutionalized discrimination, not class exploitation, is the primary source of middle-class female protest. Given this fact, it is men, and not the very organization of the social system itself, who stand in the way. Consequently, it is reform of the existing system which is required, and not the abolition of existing property relations. Not proletarian revolution, which would sweep away the privileges of the middle-class woman. The fact that the fight against discrimination is essentially a liberal reform program was further mystified by the assertion that the equalization of the status of women would bring about a revolution because it would alter the structure of the family and transform human relationships which were held to be perverted through the existence of male authoritarianism. The left line held that the equalization of the status of women is not, nor could it be, the cause of the decomposition of the nuclear family. The organization of family is a result of the existing economic structure, just as the origin of the contemporary nuclear family is to be found in the rise of capitalism, so it is perpetuated in the interests of monopoly capitalism. 
Furthermore, equalization of the status of women would be no more likely to introduce an era of beautiful human relationships than did the introduction of Christianity bring obedience to the Golden Rule or the Ten Commandments. The claim that status equalization would bring about a revolution is of the same order as the claim made by suffragists that giving women the vote would usher in an era of world peace. Abolishing discrimination would not lead to a revolution in the status of women because it would leave the class structure absolutely untouched. Gloria Steinem built a corporation. A woman might become a general or a corporation vice president, but the factory girl would remain the factory girl. The tactical and ideological error of the left in this struggle was to try to win the entire mass movement to their position. The failure to recognize class struggles led to the defeat of the leftist position, not only because of the predominant middle class background of the movement, but also because the left had not only to fight the petty bourgeois reformers, but also the anti-communist Cold War ideologies, with which almost all North Americans have been so thoroughly infected. Without disciplined organization and a working class base, a left position will always lose in a mass movement or be reduced to self-defeating opportunism. Sisterhood, root of bourgeois feminism. The politics of oppression and the politics of discrimination were amalgamated and popularized in the ethic of sisterhood. Sisterhood invoked the common oppression of all women, the common discrimination suffered by all. Sisterhood was the bond, the strength of the woman's movement. It was the call to unity and the basis of solidarity against all attacks from the male-dominated left and right, based on the idea that common oppression creates common understanding and common interests upon which all women can unite, transcending class, language, and race lines, to bring about a vast movement for social justice, after first abolishing the special privileges enjoyed by all men, naturally. The ideology of sisterhood came to emphatically deny the importance, even the existence, of class conflict in the women's movement. To raise class issues, to suggest the existence of class conflict, to engage in any form of the class struggle, was defined as divisive of women, as a plot by men to destroy women. After all, were not Marx and Lenin men? As weakening the women's struggle, and the perpetrator was proven beyond the shadow of a doubt to be a traitor to women male identified, an agent of the enemy in the sisterhood. Sisterhood was a moral imperative. Disagreements were to be minimized. No woman was to be excluded from the movement. All sisters were to love all other sisters. All sisters were to support all other sisters. No sister was to publicly criticize other sisters. Sisterhood and the outward unity it provided also disguised and mystified the internal class contradictions of the women's movement. Specifically, sisterhood temporarily disguised the fact that all women do not have the same interests, needs, desires. Working class women and middle class women, student women and professional women, minority women and white women, have more conflicting interests than could ever be overcome by their common experience based on sex discrimination. The illusions of sisterhood were possible because women's liberation had become, in its ideology and politics, predominantly a middle-class movement. The voices of poor and working-class women, of racial and national minority women, or even of housewives with children, were only infrequently heard. Even when these women were recognized, they were dismissed with a token gesture or an empty promise. When the isolation of the left was complete, almost all internal opposition to bourgeois feminism disappeared. The collapse of sisterhood was principally a result of the disguised class and political conflict, 
which became acute throughout 1970 to 71. Under the guise of rejecting elitism, left-wing women were attacked mercilessly for being domineering, oppressive, elitist, male-identified, etc. In fact, the early radical leadership was, in this way, either discredited or driven out of the movement to be replaced by non-oppressive, apolitical, manipulative, feminist, or radical feminist leadership. This was the period of the trashing. At this time, a clearly defined right wing also emerged. The reactionary, radical feminists who were, by and large, virulently anti-leftist and anti-communist. In the end, political debate became almost completely non-existent in the small group, which was essentially reduced to being a source of social and psychological support. Rivalries, disputes, and even feuds often grew up between small groups in the same city, each doubtless accusing the other of being elitist, frequently having the effect, along with the major programmatic and ideological divisions between feminists and politicos, of making even the minimal workings of a woman's center impossible. That's the end of this installment of Marxist Menagerie. Thank you so much for listening. We'll pick back up with the section entitled Reactionary Feminism when the Menagerie returns next week or sooner if you sign up for the Patreon. Till then, enjoy your epoch. 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 Epoch.